I'm Daniel Gowerluck, and this is On Earth. On Earth is brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an Earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today on Earth, we're talking to... Anais Orsi. Hello, Anais, and welcome to the podcast. Uh, now, you are a climate scientist. Um, now, what is a climate scientist to you? What is a climate scientist? It, it's a, so it's a scientist, so someone who uses the scientific method and studies the Earth's climate. And we can come from all sorts of different backgrounds. Like some people are computer uh, scientists and they make models of the climate. Some people are geologists and they look at the the science of past climates and rocks and some people are physicists and they look at the motion of the ocean and atmosphere. It could be lots of different things. And which kind are you? Oh, I'm, I'm a little bit of everything. Not everything, everything. But I, I studied physics. So at the background, I'm a physic, f- physicist, we could say. I, I could say I'm a physicist. And I, so I started by studying the ocean and the atmosphere. And then I did my PhD looking at past climate. So finding um, information in what we call proxies. So like little, um, um, so I was looking at proxies. So those are uh, clues that nature gave us about um, the past climate. So the past temperature, the past amount of snow that fell. And this I use me personally in ice cores. And so part of my work is to find these clues. Part of my work is to do some geochemistry to figure out how, what I should measure to get information about the past climate. So sometimes I look at the difference between the isotopes of krypton and the isotopes of nitrogen in bubbles of air from ice cores. And that tells me about the past temperature. So there's a whole big amount of work that goes into like looking at very complicated little traces of isotopic composition of something to go back to a climate variable like temperature. And so I do part of that and I do part of modeling too. And where do you find these ice cores? Oh, I find these ice cores in, uh, in, in Greenland and Antarctica, in places where the snow never, ever melts. Um, now, you're just joining us here at UBC, right? Yeah, I just arrived a few months ago. Wonderful. Uh, I'm curious, what's your uh, professional background? Where did you go to school? What have you done before you were here? Yeah, so I'm, I'm French. And so I did my initial training in France and I went to what we call an engineering school. So my background is a little bit of engineering, but it's really physics. I studied really basic physics, you know, including, you know, subatomic physics and these sort of things. And then I went to America to do my master's and PhD in climate science. And that's where I discovered, I discovered climate science. I discovered fieldwork and, uh, and, and Porter, Porter science. So I did that. And then I went back to France as a, what we call a postdoc after my PhD to start building my lab in France. And I, then I was hired there and I worked there for five years. And then I came to UBC. Wonderful. Wonderful. So you said you've got an engineering background. How does that uh, contribute to your work or does it? Yeah. So, I mean, in France, 
we don't do the difference between science and engineering. We consider engineering to be science and science to be engineering because at the very root of it, there is some mathematical techniques that are good for everybody and and some um, yeah numerical. Like if you'd study physics or uh, mechanics or you know uh, or math or applied math, all of that we consider the same as at the undergraduate level. So we don't make a difference between between these things, but it does affect the mindset. And and well, when I was in America, people had a saying, they say, the, the, the researcher is the one who finds the question and the engineer is the one who finds the answer. And so there is actually, now that I know, a different in mindset between a, a scientist and an engineer in the way that, it, and it's more of a personality thing than a training thing, because I think that our training is very uh, permeable. You can have a complete engineering training and then realize that you want to answer the big questions of the universe. Or you could have a scientist training and realize that you really need to work on building a new instrument that's going to measure that something that's never been measured and you get your hands into building. And, and part of my work is really engineering. Part of my work is doing some plumbing to like figure out how I'm going to be able to uh, measure something in the ice core on a vacuum line. And I'm I'm, you know, designing pieces I'm sending to the glass blower to make a special trap that's going to be able to trap this element that I want to measure. And so I think my work is completely permeable between science and engineering. That's really cool. And yeah, that's a great way of explaining uh, the difference between engineers and scientists. And I, I never thought about it like that. <laughs> um, I'm curious, what got you interested in climate science? So I, I always knew I wanted to be a scientist and I was studying physics and I loved it. I, I loved the inquiry about understanding the world and I, and I loved the fact that, that um, it is using, um, you can rediscover everything when you're studying this sort of science. It's not based on, on an amount of knowledge that you have to accumulate, like it's not. When you're a student, physics student, it's not about memorizing a whole bunch of facts. It's about figuring things out and you can recalculate lots of things yourself. And I enjoyed that. But I thought that like the big questions in physics are things that you can't really communicate very well with the layman. Like I can't explain my grandma why it's super interesting to look at quarks and neutrinos. And I thought at the time that, you know, climate change is the big issue of my generation and the one to come after me. And I wanted to participate in that. And I said, oh, how can I use my, my physicist background into, you know, f investigating something that I foresaw was like a big side or challenge. So that's how I got into that. Interesting. Excellent. <laughs> um, now, another thing I'd like to ask about is uh, I've noticed most career paths tend to be a little circuitous. Uh, people don't usually end up where they ex expected to be. Um, and people often face setbacks or, or change uh, careers mid-direction, um, or change direction mid-career. Uh, you mentioned that you did change your focus a little bit. Uh, have you faced any setbacks or anything that's caused you to completely change your focus? Uh, I wouldn't say a setback. I would just say that I discovered things that I didn't know existed. So like as, as a young person, I thought that there was two types of science. There was theory, where you need a pencil and paper, and then there was experimental work when you're in the lab mixing chemicals and blowing up stuff. And I didn't know anything about actual field science, which is you go out and you measure the real earth, not like a like test tube and a perturbation and you look at the difference, but actually trying to investigate 
the world as it is. And I discovered that in the course of my PhD. And to me, that was really a great discovery. And I really enjoyed it. And I wanted to do this type of science when I discovered that it existed. That's great. <laughs> uh, by the way, you mentioned that you do um, a lot of field work. Have you done any field work here in BC? I haven't, no. I, I do field work in polar regions. So I've done field work in Antarctica and Newfoundland in the Arctic near, near Svalbard, but I've never, I've never done it yeah, close to home. So I'm, I'm curious, uh, what are you working on right now? What am I working on right now? Right now, I'm, I'm working on trying to uh, understand why is climate changing. So, so we, I'm looking at polar climate. So in Antarctica and in Greenland and in the Arctic in general. And, and polar regions right now are the places that are warming the most. But the problem is because we don't have any, like nobody lives there, especially in Antarctica. Nobody lives in Antarctica. And so we don't have a record of what's normal climate. Like what was the climate before we started climate change? And if we don't know the normal, how can we know that our climate today is different? You know, we need a baseline to measure climate change on you know, and, and finding this baseline is really not straightforward when you don't have any historical measurements. Like a lot of our measurements today, they start in 1979 when we started having satellites. But even then, in polar regions, they're not always super reliable. And we also need ground-based measurements. And so my work is really about finding clues in the natural environment, in the polar ice cores, essentially, but not only to reconstruct the past climate so that we could say, okay, the climate in the past was on average this much. So today we really have two or three degrees of climate change, for instance. And then the second question is two, three degrees. What does that mean? Like is the interannual variability, the variability from year to year, from decade to decade this much, or is it, you know, 0.1 degree and two degrees is huge. You know, when it's, it's important to know what these numbers mean. And, and I try to also look at what we call past climate variability. How did climate change before human came into the picture? And, and how does that variability relate to the future variability? Like for instance, you know, we're talking about two degree warmer planet minimum at the end of the century. But do people know how much colder the planet was in the last glacial maximum? You know, in the last glacial maximum, for average for the planet, it was less than five degrees Celsius. So, you know, two degrees or three degrees is halfway, you know, the distance between us and the last glacial maximum. And then if we know these numbers about, you know, temperature from now, between now and the LGM, we appreciate more what, you know, the future holds and what it really means. And so this is the sort of questions that I'm investigating. So uh, what kind of timescales are you looking at? You said before humans, is that like thousands of years or millions of years? No, thousands of years, yeah. So I'm looking at essentially the last thousand years or the last two thousand years. That's, I'm essentially looking at this period, but I'm also interested in what we call the quaternary, so ice ages, because we are uh, getting into a scale of change that is not that much smaller than the scale of climate change in the, in the, between a glacial and an interglacial period. And so that's the last glacial maximum was 20,000 years. Yeah, when you say that the last ice age was um, just five degrees off what we've got right now, uh, that really puts one or two degrees into perspective. Now, you mentioned that you study ice cores to determine what these ancient climates were like. Um, how do the ice cores 
uh, tell you that information? So they tell that information in a number of ways. There actually are a number of things that we could do in an ice core to retrieve, say, past temperatures. So look, essentially, at past temperatures. So the simplest thing to do probably is uh, once the ice core has been retrieved. So an ice core, the, the size of it is about this, the, it's 10 centimeters, so like the size of a CD, you can imagine. It makes a hole through the ice sheet, the size of a CD. So once the ice core is out, then we have a hole. And we can just simply take a thermometer in a very long cable and take it down the hole because the ice is full of air. And the same way that the insulation works in your house, uh, the ice is a good insulation, insulating material. And so 100 meters down, actually, the ice hasn't adjusted to the atmospheric temperature of today. It's still cold like it was 100 or 1,000 years ago. And so just by measuring the temperature down that borehole, of the ice sheet, we can retrieve the temperature of the last glacial maximum in some places. We can retrieve the temperature of the la la what we call the Little Ice Age in the 1800s, like the minimum that is uh, 500 years ago. And so from that, we get the, the amplitude of the slow variations of climate because it is diffuse. So it is only the average long-term climate, but we get this average of the last 30 years, which is exactly what we're after. If you want to say, well, are we really warmer? So, so I do a lot of these measurements. I go to holes that have been drilled previously and do these measurements to get the, a picture of the background climate. So that's one way. And then another way is to look at what we call water isotopes. So the ice cores is made of water and water is H2O. So it has hydrogen and oxygen isotopes in it, in this molecule. And what um, we call isotopes are elements that have the same number of protons and electrons, so they have the same chemistry, so that's why they have the same name. But then some of them have a neutron extra in them, or two, and so they're heavier. And so they have the same chemistry because they have the same protons and electrons, but they don't have the same physics because one of them is heavier. And, and so they will react a little bit differently to things like diffusion, so that's how you mix things. So for instance, if you have a temperature difference between one side of the ocean, for instance, like the bottom of the ocean and the surface of the ocean, then the heavy isotope, they will concentrate in the cold side and the light isotopes in the warm side if they just diffuse like that. Because once they get into the cold side, the heavy one don't have the energy to move back up to the warm side. So they get kind of stuck there. And they also react very differently to phase changes. So the heavy isotopes, they will uh, stay in the condensed phase more so that if you evaporate, the light isotope will evaporate more. And so if you evaporate water from the ocean, there's more light isotopes in the vapor. And then when this vapor concentrates into rain, the heavy isotope go into rain. So then in the vapor, it's lighter and lighter and lighter. And so, and that is also temperature sensitive, but, and this way they record things like the speed of the wind, the humidity and the temperature. And so we understand some of these processes really well. And we have observed that there's a very clear correlation between the oxygenating composition of the rainwater and the temperature in the past. And so we use these, these um, relationships to infer temperature from the water isotope. So that's one way. And then we have another really easy way that is, is understandable, which is the number of melt layers. If you're a place where sometimes it's warm in the summer, then you will have snow melt. And so you will see because the normal ice has bubbles in it, but the melt layers has no bubbles. So you can count the number of melt layers you have through time. And this way, you know, if you had a warm summer or cold summer. So there's a number of indicators. 
I never thought about how different uh, or the different types of ice, but that totally makes sense. I guess some ice is made by compacting snow. Um, and like you said, others is made by melting water and letting it refreeze, right? Yeah. And so most of the ice in ice cores is, is snow. It's made by snow so that it, it never disappears. So you, you accumulate layers after layers. Otherwise, you, you would have a hard time finding the age of that ice. But yeah, so we have a bunch of different ways and we put them together to get a full picture. I'm curious, what's the oldest ice on Earth? Oh, well, so the, the, the oldest ice that is what we call in stratigraphic order so that we, we have all of the ice. Right now, the oldest we found is, is 800,000 years, the oldest ice from an ice core that we have managed to date. But we also have found patches of ice that we call stranded. So like very old ice that's outcropping or that's stuck in a place and that's not melting because it's still cold. That can date to one and a half million years or something like that. And right now, like the ice coring community is really busy trying to find older ice because there's something really funny that happened about one to one and a half million years, uh, yeah, million years ago, which is that ice ages that we are interested in, the, the last few ice ages, they were about 100,000 years apart. But two million years ago, ice ages were 41,000 years apart. And suddenly they got more intense and longer. And we don't know exactly why we went from having little ice ages every 41,000 years to deeper, bigger ice ages every 100,000 years. And there's such a clear relationship between the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere and the the this pacing of ice ages that there are also very interesting uh, hypotheses to test about the interaction between the carbon cycle and the climate that are of great value to understand what we are doing with this great carbon experiment in the atmosphere right now. And so we are very interested to get ice from that transition period, but it's not so easy to find it. And then even less easy to know how old it actually is. That's something we don't often hear about, uh, that the changes in um, in the frequency of our ice ages. That's really interesting. Uh, now, you mentioned that you go out into the field. Um, in these interviews, one of my favorite things is hearing field stories. It seems like the craziest stuff happens when you go into the field. Uh, do you have any field stories you'd like to share with us today? Well, like I've participated in many field experiments from all sorts of different countries. And I think that what what's amusing in the field experience that I have is, is that you are with people from different nations that have different habits. And, and so imagine us, we are say in Antarctica, there is, you know, 20, 30 of us, and we in a t camp with tents, everybody sleeps in their own little tent. And, um, and we have one warm room that uh, has a, a stove that is working on on kerosene because we just use the same fuel as the plane that brought us there. And we have to live together. And it's it's really super fun to all be together. But it's also funny because we all have very different ways to feed each ourselves. We have different ways to unwind and uh, and find time for ourselves. We have, you know, different ways to organize what we consider is good social events. And then, you know, like time together versus time alone is something that's culturally different. And we find ways to make it work for everyone. But for instance, you know, if the Japanese are the ones that are making um, food that day, then maybe you'll have fish for breakfast, you know, and you have to be okay with that. Or, and, and so 
And so th there are lots of fun things like that. We also have to eat a lot. And so if you go to a camp that's managed, like the logistic is managed by a certain country, then you discover all of the childhood candies of your colleagues, because chances are they're not the same as your childhood candies. But sure enough, in any field camp that I've been in, we have lots and lots of candies because it's, it's a challenge to, to eat enough to keep warm. So we get to, to have lots of cakes and cookies and candies and, and then that's, that's kind of fun. And we run out of whatever's the most popular pretty quick oftentimes. So who's your favorite, um, camp to stay at which nation? <laughs> oh, I don't have a favorite. I think, I think, I think they're all different. I think that, um, the, the Danes that organize the Greenland field camps, they are very special because the, um, what makes them different from other camps that I've been with is the fact that it's all organized by scientists. So it, like, it is the group of researchers that is managing everything and they hire, you know, a cook and a carpenter to and a mechanic to help them out. But it's really, it's not like there's not a logistical entity that takes care of the organization and then scientists are guests. It's like scientists are doing all of the logistics works and we have a few helpers there of you know they have technical um skills that we don't have and we absolutely need yeah and so that makes it the atmosphere a little bit different and funny enough it also makes it a lot cheaper because the the connection between what we'd like and how much it costs and what we need is is more clear when it's a scientist doing it but it's at the expense of them doing science of course because it takes a huge amount of work to do that speaking of um intercultural uh, relations uh as you mentioned, you're coming from France. Uh, have you noticed um, any differences in the Canadian workplace versus the French workplace? Oh, there are, there are a lot of differences. But to be honest, I've only been here a few months, which means I've not, not actually like been at the office with everyone just yet because of the COVID. And so it's a little bit early for, for me to, to, to say something about that. But I'm like I've, I've worked in America for a long time and, and Americans are very different from French people, the way they organize science. Um, and you will find that I think in the organization of society in the way that French are a lot more uh, group oriented and uh, Americans are a lot more PI, single PI oriented. And I've been told that the Canadians are like a little bit in between. But, um, but like in France, for instance, you're going to have all of the Porter scientists in the country in the one lab is going to be the Porter Science Lab. And the point would be that that the expertise is, you know, they organize it nationally so that there are labs all around the country, but they're organized by discipline so that people have the critical mass in, in one location. And in America, they organize it completely the opposite way. They sprinkle around all the countries so that in each university, there's a little bit of everything to teach the students a little bit of everything. And so it's a fundamentally different organization of work. That's an interesting way of explaining it, but I can see the value in both systems now that you mention it. Yeah. And I think that we should not try to be similar because in, in diverse organizations come, you know, the ability to solve different problems. And, and is you know, science is, we all work together with different countries and we're all very open-minded into, into collaborating with people. So it's good that there are strength in each system so that together, you know, we might you know, be able to access all sorts of, of questions with different sort of, of, you know, skills and what is easy for one country is different from what is easy for another. So collaborating with people 
who have it easy and the things that are hard for you is always very fruitful. Uh, speaking of difficulties, I'm curious, what's the most challenging part of your work? Oh, the most challenging part of my work is probably funding. Is um, and, and by that, I mean, I, mean, I think a lot of people are familiar with when they watch a movie and the credits at the end, there's a whole bunch of different things. And in science, it's the same. Science, to, to get a scientific project running, you have a patchwork of funding. And aligning all of this in the same time scale, oftentimes they're also short. And so once you get one piece, you also need the other pieces, but to get them all aligned at the appropriate time is really challenging. And so for instance, you, you might get a very nice grant for like three years, say, and that's great. You could get a PhD student to work on this, but by the time you know you get the grant, the PhD student will probably come a year later. And if you didn't manage to, because, you know, like what we do is a bit specific. So then maybe you don't get a good, perfect student for this project that when that right year, then maybe you, and then, and then the student is, you know, doesn't have the support that he could have had if it, his time had been aligned better with the project, or you could do it the opposite way. You could get the student first, but it's very risky for the student that the, you know, like the funding for the field work, for instance, comes after he's arrived because then it happens maybe too late in his project to be really worth it for him. And so like managing the timeline of all of the different pieces between funding the fieldwork and funding the science in the lab and funding the students or the postdocs or even ourselves to do that science and getting all that together and having our international colleagues have the same timeline so that we can actually also work with them is a huge challenge. Yeah, if, if even one domino doesn't fall, um then the whole project can just fall apart. Yeah, and so then, yeah, then you do something different. Or, but like, if you if you have an idea, it's not so easy to to get all of these things aligned. You mentioned having PhD students. Uh, do you have any students right now? So I just graduated my my first PhD student in March, and I'm gonna have another one starting in the fall. And she already started with her master's, but she's not technically a PhD student just yet. Uh, what kinds of qualities are you looking for in master's or PhD students? That's a good question. I welcome students that are very different from each other. And uh, because the, the work that I do can go in different directions. And I, I'm trying to um, offer the students something that's well tailored to uh, their interests and also their skills. So that as students, I would be very good in math. I can give them, you know, a project that has a big numerical component and a, and a student that's very skilled in the lab and is keen to do things with their hands and they can have a big lab component. And I also try to find projects that they can develop whatever skills they don't already have. But I think to be a good grad student, number one quality is motivation and number one quality or number two, but it's just as important is perseverance. And that's just something that some students don't, haven't tested for themselves just yet. <coughs> PhD student would be at least four years. And for four years, you're going to work on one small little thing. And it's not going to work the way you expected. You know, and it, and, and it won't be easy because if it was easy, it already been done. And, and how do you uh, manage to keep motivated? Because everybody's super motivated to start. But how do you manage to keep being motivated two years in when you've... So some people... They, once they figured out kind of the, the gist of the idea, then they lose interest. Like, oh, okay, well, but, but science is 
tricky and it takes a long time to dot all the I's and etc. And and being perseverant is very important. And it's not so and it's not so easy to know if the students are going to be persevering if they've never done that in their lives before. So that's another, another tricky thing. Absolutely. That's something that's really tough to evaluate um, until you actually see it. Yeah, and they, and they don't know that for themselves because they haven't been in a situation where they had to. So that's why it's, it's good to do a master's first, not come straight out of undergrad to kind of know that or have life experience to know whether, you know, like... How do you deal with failure? How do you deal with the fact that things don't work out the same way? Because a lot of smart kids, they never had to work hard in their lives because things came easy to them. But when they're going to do research, then they will find a limit. Everybody does. And then what happens? That's the question. That's, it's hard to evaluate, but we have to try. Absolutely. That's a great way of um, explaining the entire PhD process. <laughs> oh, so I, I asked you about the uh, most challenging part of your work. What's the best part of your, your work or your favorite part? Yeah, my, what I love about my work is that there are no two days alike. Like it's very diverse. What I do is very, like from one day to the next, it could be very different. And, um, and I think in general, what's amazing about being a research scientist is that your work will adapt to how your brain functions. And so two scientists will have their work and their career and their day-to-day -day routine will be entirely different because it will be adapted to what they have figured out works for them and how they become productive and how their brain works. And what I like about my work is that one day, you know, I will be doing some communication activities like I'm doing with you today or I'm be teaching and then another day I'll be you know soldering stuff in the lab to build a new instrument or a new vacuum line and then another day I'll be shoveling snow to make water for my dinner in Antarctica you know and then and then another day I'll be you know analyzing data and finally getting data set and finally uh, like getting some answers about or some new questions about the science that I do and and so it, it, it's very varied and there's also a lot of writing and there's a lot of, you know, interacting with people. It's, it's a, science is also something that's very uh, collective. Today, nobody does science alone anymore and um, not that they ever did. And, um, and it, it's also about, you know, finding good collaborators and, and exchanging ideas with people. And we always get inspired by talking to others and. I enjoy that a lot about my work too. Diversity seems to be a theme with your work. Um, you were talking about how you want a diverse uh, skill set coming in uh, and how you appreciate the diversity of tasks that you're constantly doing. Um, so I'm curious, do you identify as belonging to any underrepresented communities and do you feel like that's impacted your career? So I'm a woman and I guess being a woman in a physical based field is a we are a minority, we are a small minority, right? Less than 20%. Maybe when I was an undergrad student, we were less than 10%. And so in some way, I've been very um, used to being a male-dominated world, male-dominated world. And, uh, and, and that comes with advantages and disadvantages. And, you know, we have to ride the current the best we can. We have to make the most of it. And I have to say that I've always been very encouraged, but to try to explain to people people who haven't really come to terms with that. The thing about being a visible minority is that uh, when people see you and they don't know you, then don't immediately think that they can trust you. And so the burden of proof 
takes a little extra effort for every single person that you meet. And, it, and in that way, um, it takes a little bit more effort and it takes time. And sometimes you have this time and it's about building relationships and that will work, you know, it will just take the time that it needs. And sometimes you need to find allies, such as, you know, it has happened to me that I need to bring a male technician with me in a meeting with someone that has a hard time talking to women so that he repeats word for word every sentence that I say because they don't hear when I say it. They have to hear it from a guy. Even though he's a technician and a scientist, it works, you know, because it's about male-female. It's not about, you know, hierarchy or anything. And so sometimes you need to resort to this sort of strategies. And, and sometimes women are championed and... And that's great. And um, you need to, we need to find a way to, to make it work. But what I've learned also is that it's not easy for men. And we have to remember that, you know, although, you know, we have specific to be, to be a visible minority is sometimes really annoying. For instance, like one time I was giving a big interview on a TV panel and, and there was four people that were uh, on the panel, one journalist, one adventurer that had been to Antarctica many times as you know on great uh, on great adventures and then um, a scientist that was the head of climate science in France so like a very senior scientist who's a climate modeler and me who was a polar climate science expert and it was about explaining you know why you have big iceberg discharges in Antarctica right now so I was by far like the most competent to answer the questions but they would always cut me and they would be way more willing to have the adventure explain um, things about the polar environment than asking me, even though I probably have spent more time in the polar environment than he has. But, you know, I didn't, I wasn't what they expected. And so then in these situations, you know, we have to learn how to deal with it because the situations won't go away. And so part of it is to know the other people who were interviewed so that they can echo back to us or like say, oh, this is a question really Anna should be answering. And they give you the voice back and, and learn how to do that for each other would be a way to advance because it's, it's always going to happen. I'm, I guess I'm pessimistic about changing everybody at the same time, but we can always, and I've always found the lies and I've always found a way to go around difficulties, but I have to say that I'm, I'm a tall woman. And so it's easier for me than it is for, you know, women that are very petite, and I think the, the hardest thing maybe is when your students do that to you, when your students can't listen and tell you that they know better than you do. And that's very annoying. And this is an issue that I haven't really encountered all that much. I've managed to stir my students fast enough, but I have colleagues, female colleagues who struggle with that all the time. Student like thinking they're smarter than their prof and, or the advisor and like talking over them, they have to fail and fail before they can listen. And it's part of, I guess, selecting a good question to this question that can talk to a woman. That would be one. But uh, that that is an issue, for instance, that, you know, guys don't have to deal with. But maybe a guy that would have like pink hair or that would look different would also struggle. You know, you don't know. And so, yeah, we have to find a way. I have to admit, I'm surprised but, and disappointed that that still happens even today. That sounds like something that would happen in the 1950s. No, it, it happens all the time. I'm curious, uh, in that same thread, uh, do you feel like climate science is a very welcoming field or is it more insular and, and closed off? 
No, it's very welcoming. You know, and in my own little community of, of ice core science, there's maybe, you know, 300 people worldwide, including the students. So like maybe 100 scientists and we all know each other and we all work with each other all around the world. Like in, you know, in my working group, there's a guy from Japan and a guy from Australia and I have this project with Americans and with Europeans, all nations of Europe. And, and we're one big family and, um, and we have great leaders and, and yeah, it's, it's very welcoming and in general climate science. I think in general, that science is really open because that's how we make progress. And, and climate science is a kind of young field, you know, like 20 years ago, it barely existed and it's been exploding since. So, so if it's young, then it's maybe easier. It's good to hear, very good. <laughs> um, now you mentioned earlier that uh, you've been impacted by COVID. Um, have you been able to do any work during the pandemic or how has it impacted you? Yeah, so, I mean, I have done work of, but of course I've been impacted because I'm, I'm a young mother. And, you know, when you're during the period of lockdown, if I'm at home with my child, there is no way I can work like a two year old. They just want to be on your lap and it's really hard, but I have a very supportive husband. So I could like find a couple hours a day to, to do something. But then this time was entirely used up to support my students who really needed help because I was in France and France, we had a very serious lockdown in the spring last year. And uh, that means like you were literally not being able to go outside more than one hour a day. And for me, at least, you know, I have an adult to talk to and a child to play with. It's not so bad, but for a student that's stuck in 25 square meters and has, you know, a studio with not even a desk, maybe like it was really, really hard on them for these time. And, and, and then I had to, you know, spend a lot of time also supporting them in a way that's not always um as efficient as seeing each other face to face so over this last year i think i spent a lot more time on zoom with my students in in a way that it would have happened very differently if we had been able to be face to face and i'm sure they appreciated it and i think it's really interesting how you equate uh working with a two-year-old in your home uh to living alone as a grad student i think that's really generous i think it's harder for them you know, I think it's harder to be alone and have nobody to talk to. Now, you've painted a really fun and interesting picture of climate science. Uh, so I'm curious, uh, what advice would you have for anyone who's listening uh, who really wants to follow in your footsteps? Yeah, so the, the first thing to notice is that climate science is not really something that you do at the undergrad level. Like you could do a little bit of climate science in, at UBC. We're going to very soon have a, a climate science credential. <clears throat> that might evolve into a minor, but in order to be a scientist, it's, it's still good to have fundamental uh, level of very basic science like math, physics, computer science, chemistry, biology, or like earth science, geology, this sort of thing, and then have applied knowledge um, to oceanography or atmospheric science or climate science or hydrology or these, you know, these are fields that, that really use the basic science and it's important to have a good foundation in the basic science to, to be at the level of a research scientist, I would say. And um, so that's one thing. And the second thing is that, is that science is important. Like today we still have like a very big um, questions about the most basic aspects of climate science. Like I can't tell you today if Antarctica is warming or not warming, 
even though we have satellite data, it's still not clear. Like there are still lots of empty spots on the map. If you look at the maps of the IPCC, especially in the Southern Hemisphere, there is a lot of real science to do. It's not all about adaptation. It's not all about just climate justice. Like we need to have good forecasts and there is room for doing basic science also in climate science. And, um, and, uh, and to do that, we can't neglect knowing enough, you know, basic math, like understanding statistics, understanding, you know, is this change significant or not? And, um, and I think that, that learning a bit about data science is also something that's very important. I really like that point that you made. Earlier you mentioned that climate science is a very young field. Often when young people are looking at science, it can feel like all the major discoveries have already been made. But with climate science, there's still a lot to be discovered. Now, if you had to recommend one course to a young person, uh, what would you recommend? Yeah, I can't really answer this because the, the, as, I, as I explained, like the, um, the thing about our field is that it's super diverse and you can really come in with very, very different backgrounds and be welcome and make a meaningful contribution. Like you could be really good in the lab and find a new proxy that's going to open up new understanding. You could be really skilled in making little sensors on drones that are going to enable us to measure new things in the atmosphere, for instance. You could be really good in, in you know, solving the equations of motion and make good contributions there. It depends. And so I think people just have to come with curiosity and whatever field, basic field they like, just do it well. It's like, choose whatever you want, but whatever you choose, do it well. Great advice, no matter what you're going into. Now, you mentioned earlier that doing a PhD is a marathon and can be quite a tough slog. I found that to get through that process, uh, people often need supports and inspirations. Did you have anyone like that in, in your studies? Maybe my PhD advisor. He was just awesome. You know, he, yeah, I had a really great relationship with him and he supported me the whole way through and, you know, gave me slack when I needed it and, and gave me inspiration when I needed it. Now, you're at the beginning of an exciting new career here at UBC, but I'm going to get you to look uh, to the long term now. What would you like to be your legacy when you retire? Yeah, that's a really difficult question because... Uh, I think that the science is not an individual endeavor. And maybe I could rephrase the question as, what is the question that I would like to find the answer to? But I'm nev- definitely not, not going to be the only one finding the answer to. I think that any scientific questions we have today, they're going to be answered by different strands of evidence, different sorted tools, different sort of skills that are going to somehow like coalesce into um uh, some level of certainty in in what we find and you know t- today one of one of the big questions that i'm uh investigating seems very simple but it's it's about polar amplification why is it that today we have the arctic that is warming the most of the planet you know already is warmed two to three degrees since you know a hundred years ago and the antarctic hasn't warmed at all so if there's something about polar why is it polar in the north and not polar in the south. So we have some ideas, but like the actual mechanisms by which you warm polar regions more than tropical regions. So what we call polar amplification. And how does that play differently in the north and in the south? 
you know, we comes back to, we are still answering very basic, simple questions like that. And, and we can learn about it in the modern time where we have all these observations, but it's also in a really transient and we can learn about it. Looking at ancient climate, for instance, the last glacial maximum, the last glacial maximum was, you know, twice as cold in the Arctic than it was in the Antarctic. And it's, it's, it's interesting to investigate why. That's interesting. I didn't know that. Now another question. I know that many fields are changing very quickly, uh, climate science included. Even within your career, it must have changed a bit. Uh, for undergrads, uh, going into the field, it could be completely different by the time they finish their PhD. Where do you see climate science going in the future? And what advice do you have for young people to anticipate those changes? So I will answer in, in two ways. One is with regard to science in general, there is a big revolution right now in uh, data science, in the amount, the sheer amount of data that come, that's coming out, whether it is from satellite data, whether it is from the model outputs, we are going to release the next International Panel of Climate Change IPCC report this July. And with that comes like a lot of climate simulations that people have run the simulations, but haven't analyzed all of the data because it's a huge amount of data. It's going to keep us, you know, busy for 10 years to analyze all this data. And there are a lot of things that can be done with data science. And, and the great thing about that is that the techniques that are applied to earth science or climate science issues are also applicable to all sorts of different problems in, in life, you know, scientific problems in life. And so learning about this sort of skills is, is useful as an undergrad because there is a huge market for these sort of skills in a workforce related to climate science or related to astronomy and looking at, you know, all of the data from the Hubble telescopes and all that related to, you know, optimizing um, the energy grid for, you know, the next energy revolution or anything really. And so, so that's one field that I think is going to become, you know, as important as reading and writing a little bit of of knowledge of computing and a little bit of knowledge of um, data science, like how do you analyze data? What's significant data? What's, you know, how do you get information out of big data sets? I think it's going to become a core skill that is important across all science and even across society. Like, I think it's important for everybody to have a little bit of numeric literacy today. So that's one. And then second, with respect to climate science, uh, there is still like progress is made a little bit by ideas and deep understanding about how the climate system works, but progress is also made, that's my engineering side, about finding new things to measure and new ways to measure it. And a lot of progress happens also by, you know, fire detectors that used to weigh two tons and be in a lab and need to be very protected in lab setting, now wearing 10 grams and going on a drone and being able to like spatially measure through instead of bringing the samples back at home in the lab, like actually like measuring in real time in the real atmosphere, for instance. And, and drones are, you know, things that haven't existed for more than a decade, a huge amount of progress is happening with that and to observe the earth with that too, because another example of how drones are super useful is if you want to look at the ocean atmosphere interface, um, if you fly too low, you might crash. If you're a human being in a plane, there's a problem. If it's a drone, you just lost a bunch of money, but no one died. And so it's loud kind of in, you know, in remote areas where you're not going to crash into somebody. And, uh, and so a lot of things are becoming possible because of new instrumental platforms. And so people that have it, you know, 
kind of an interest in instrumentation or in, you know, new lab measurements, like with ice cores, we have our little pieces of ice and we're still inventing new things to do with them and new measurements. And, and today, like a successful grad student, we'd be someone that comes up with something new to measure because the old stuff to measure, the labs already exist, the PIs already exist, and there isn't necessarily that much room for some newcomers. But there's so many new things to do, so many things to do differently or to do at a different scale because instrumentation becomes easier that, that you know, in investing in new methods as much as in new ideas, I think it's important. That reminds me of what you were saying at the beginning of this interview, uh, how climate science is the perfect crossover of science and engineering. Uh, the scientist asks the question and the engineer tries to find the solution. Well, Anais, those are all the questions I have for today. Uh, is there anything I missed before I let you go? No, I just, I, I can just conclude by saying that, you know, like science is, is fantastic because it will adapt to who you are and what you like. There's n many, many ways to skin a cat. There's many ways to arrange it, depending, you know, if you're super introvert, if you're super extrovert, if you want to work with lots of people, if you like to be in 15 fields at the same time, because you're mind is scattered or if you like to like focus on like one super detailed thing and you're like oh, the world expert the only one that can be the measurement because it's so tedious that only you can do it all, all of these things are possible and that's what's really super cool about about life science life as a scientist in general <laughs> wonderful and well said uh, well thank you for sharing your time your passion your stories and i hope you have a great day Thanks for listening to On Earth. On Earth is hosted by me and produced by myself, Kirsten Hodge, our editor Mel Woods, and Ollie Beebe designed our logo. On Earth is made possible thanks to the generous support of the Canadian Geological Foundation. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash podcast or listen on Spotify Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week, here on Earth.